0: Mr. Holmes, we've admired you in the past, as does every Englishman. Your record as our greatest detective is known throughout the world. But this, seeing how you work, knowing that there is in England such a man as you, gives us all a sense of safety and security.
1: Watson, the needle. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome back for another episode of the IMMP podcast and another episode of our Homes for the Holidays series, where we're we're going to be talking about Sherlock Holmes in various of his presentations. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And we're back to watching a
0: a movie this time. This time it's a a video interpretation of Sherlock Holmes. Last time we actually read the stories, the first one, but... We're back into a bit of our wheelhouse on this.
1: And again, it was easy to know where to start talking about Sherlock Holmes in general. We started with the Conan Doyle stories, and we started with the first one last episode, uh, A Study in Scarlet. If we're going to talk about Sherlock Holmes adaptations in, in other media, uh, we had to start with the Basil Rathbone movies. See, I knew about these, but I never had seen them before this. Not only because, I mean, that is a really
0: cool last name for an actor. <laughs> Rathbone. I mean, that sounds awesome. But, I mean, this, this depiction of Sherlock Holmes almost does as much as the stories for cementing the idea of the character in popular culture, I think.
1: It does. Even uh, given the, the reach of the Sherlock Holmes stories, movies of course, have a much broader reach, or certainly did as we got into the 20th century. And for a lot of people, this depiction is Sherlock Holmes. They never read any of the stories, but they know who Sherlock Holmes is and how he works and what he does and what he looks like because of these movies. And these weren't even the first ever adaptations of Sherlock Holmes to other media. There were Sherlock Holmes plays in one of the the movies that we are going to talk about, was an adaptation of a play written with the approval of the, the Conan Doyle estate, I believe. And uh, there were other movies. I think there was a silent movie. There was a German adaptation of Hound of the Baskervilles. But these are the best known, and or, or were the best known, Sherlock Holmes movies and depictions for, for many, many decades. Oh, yeah. And Rathbone's just a distinctive-looking guy. He is. And he's so suited to the character, too. Absolutely.
0: I'm I'm gonna pull up the book for a moment because the book describes uh, Sherlock as his very person appearance were such to to strike the attention of of the most casual observer. In height, he was rather over six feet, and so excessively lean that he seemed to be considerably taller. His eyes were sharp and piercing, save during those intervals of torpor which I have alluded. And his thin, hawk-like nose gave his whole expression an air of alertness and decision. His chin, too, had a prominence and squareness to which to mark the man of determination. His hands were invariably blotted with ink and stained with chemicals, yet he, he was possessed of such extraordinary delicacy of touch, as I f- frequently had the occasion to observe when I watched him manipulate his fragile philosophical instruments." Pretty much every single bit of that, except the
1: stained with ink, Rathbone nails. Oh, he, he really does. So I, I have no problem with Rathbone's depiction of Sherlock Holmes, certainly physically in terms of, and in terms of demeanor. I have no problem with that being most people's image of Sherlock Holmes, because it is so on point for, uh, for Conan Doyle's description.
0: In some ways, Rathbone is cleaner and neater as Sherlock Holmes for the film, compared to his book example, and that means that a lot of the interpretations have this more neatly dressed man, Sherlock Holmes, in some ways more referencing Rathbone's interpretation than the book gives him credit here. Yeah,
1: he's more of a conventional gentleman, he's more of a movie star version of Sherlock Holmes from the 30s and 40s than the, the description we get in the, in the book.
0: I mean, the nose and the the glare and the <laughs> determination on his face he just yeah. gets it right every time. He commands any room he's in unless he doesn't want to. and they have a lot of fun with him being able to play Sherlock Holmes kind of master of disguise as well.:
1: Yes, yeah, I think Rathbone. they they do a lot of that in the in the movie, and it works well for film, of course. And yeah, Rathbone is a more accurate to use that term Sherlock Holmes than some of the others. Robert Downey Jr. is terrific in a lot of things. I don't dislike the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movies, but he's not the Sherlock Holmes that Conan Doyle describes in the way that Rathbone is.
0: He's a different kind of superhero. I like those movies a lot, but it's a very
1: different thing. (laughs) Yeah, But the the Rathbone movies were a series of, I think, 14 movies in all. Mm -hmm. And they had uh, an interesting history in that the first two were made by 20th Century Fox. They're American movies, although they were popular in England, although some of them were released in England under different titles. They're American-produced movies with Basil Rathbone cast as Sherlock Holmes, Nigel Bruce as uh, Dr. Watson. And I think there was one other cast member who was in all of these movies, and it was uh, Mary Gordon as Mrs. Hudson. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's nice that she shows up, and the three of them are in all of these, uh, this movie series. But after the first two movies, 20th Century Fox gave them up or, 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 or lost the rights or something, but it was picked up by Universal. And Universal made another dozen movies. But Universal really produced them as B-movies, so they produced them very quickly. They produced them for a much lower budget and so they were cranking these out a few of them a year. And you know you know what reduces budget? Yeah. A contemporary setting. Yes, there's less less uh um special wardrobe and less uh, special sets to build, and that was one of the big changes. The 220th Century Fox movies were set in the 1890s. They were the first one is an adaptation of what might be the most famous of the Conan Doyle novels, The Hound of the Baskervilles, and the second 20th Century Fox movie is actually an adaptation of the stage play, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, but after that, when Universal picked them up, suddenly it was Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, but they're living and working in the late 30s to mid-1940s, which is, of course, a pretty interesting and important time in England. Yeah because uh world war 2 is going on and we see some references to what these movies meant even in the first two in the hound of the baskervilles towards the end there's this stirring speech about Sherlock Holmes always being there to to represent the and, and to preserve the british sense of justice in the world yeah that's being said very specifically and for very specific reasons and and good reasons uh, in, uh, in 1939.
0: Yeah. And then the later stories uh, after Fox loses them become like Sherlock Holmes helps protect a bomb targeting system. And it's this gets really wild. But also, I mean, we were talking about how more Sherlock Holmes stories are always interesting. This is very much the sort of stuff I love. Moving Sherlock Holmes as a concept out of time is... Gr- Actually, very interesting because he is adaptable. He's a mentality and a a figure that is more flexible
1: to doing that than some other stories out there. And if you don't mind, I would probably talk first about Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon, which is the later movie we skipped ahead to. And the reason why I wanted to make sure we watched that is that's that's the first Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes movie that I saw. For some reason, a lot of these movies were on, like, Saturday afternoon TV in one of the local TV stations where I grew up. So, it was some rainy Saturday afternoon, and Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon comes on TV, and I I start watching it, and I'm pulled in. I watched the whole thing, and it was terrific. But I knew that, you know, I don't think that Sherlock Holmes was working against Nazis in any of the Conan Doyle stories, but here he is, as you say, protecting a bomb site. And yet, I think bomb sites were to the World War II era what missile guidance systems are to the Cold War era. And Absolutely. we talked about that as the perfect MacGuffin. Uh, missile guidance systems, they can be any shape, size, or nature that you want them to be. They're just something important. I guess there are more physical constraints around a bomb site, and yet... There a small, portable yet a supremely important MacGuffin for uh, combat as it was conducted in World War II. So it's a it's a great MacGuffin for this movie.
0: Yeah, it, it, in this era, it's either a bomb site or a microfilm. Sometimes it's a microfilm <laughs> with full of plans of a bombsite. <laughs> but it's definitely one of those generic items of value in that sense for the war effort.
1: So the story involves. First, getting this scientist, this engineer who has developed this amazingly accurate and usable and reproducible new site, getting him out of Switzerland where he has been working before the Nazis can kidnap him, getting him and his site back to England where he has promised to let England manufacture and use this site in its work against the Nazis. It's, its war against the Nazis. And, um, and all that is going well until the the scientist disappears. Leaving behind,
0: not the letter he intended, but instead a taunting letter from
1: Moriarty. Moriarty. He is the the, the chief villain in this story. And again, that's part and parcel of, of Sherlock Holmes and the Sherlock Holmes lore, is that a superhero needs a supervillain, uh, so we've got Moriarty in here. Mm-hmm. And I, we, t- we mentioned him last time just because he's
0: an interesting character, but Moriarty overall is just a perfect mirror because he is the dark Sherlock Holmes. He is the man who can match Sherlock Holmes skill for skill. But it always comes down to the ego that Moriarty does, uh, performs his tasks with and the selfishness leads him to some fault or flaw
1: you had some really great things to to say in our last episode about the important distinction and the compounding effect of a crime and then the motivations for the crime and we can recognize that the crime and that justice has to be done about the crime but that can either be mitigated or aggravated by the motivations for that crime and that's explored really interestingly in, in a study in scarlet and yeah, Moriarty, we see, it's purely greed and self-importance that motivate Moriarty, and that makes even his horrible crimes worse than, than, than they would otherwise be. And in, in some ways,
0: the fact that they make Moriarty so, so much of a constant antagonist does mean that every once in a while, for the sake of narr- narrative, Moriarty gets hit with the dumb plan stick. <laughs> like there is a couple of instances especially in this one there's a distinct instance where he is presented and questioned with why he doesn't do the simple way to deal with the problem but Moriarty <laughs> is too grand of ego and planning to not go with the convoluted way to kill him
1: <laughs> yeah it's exactly the kind of stuff that is parodied in like Austin Powers you know why don't you just shoot him well no I'm going to put him in the elaborate death trap uh, okay why <laughs> But a lot of this stuff—the fact that this is not this is not a mystery, really. I guess not. Yeah, it's an espionage story. It's a counter spy story, and this is—I think it's the kind of story that they needed. It's a superhero story too. We haven't talked about that much, although you've made some, you made some—you definitely alluded to that last time and and earlier—that these are superhero adaptations, and the. The the Conan Doyle stories were the superhero tales of their day, and these are the movie version. This is the Sherlock Holmes cinematic universe. But there's another kind of movie that, especially these warp time uh, contemporary setting Sherlock Holmes stories are. Because a lot of people watched these movies. They were very, very popular. I would bet that there was a particular person working in british intelligence during the war who saw these movies especially things like sherlock holmes and the secret weapon guy named ian fleming oh yeah sherlock holmes and the secret weapon is a james bond story absolutely and and moriarty as depicted in that is blofeld he's a or 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 um or or goldfinger he is the The supervillain master criminal who is needed to match wits with our super detective or super secret agent, which is what Sherlock Holmes really is in these movies. In some ways, though, a, a James Bond
0: character is socially skillful in the things that a Sherlock Holmes is scientifically skillful.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Because Sherlock Holmes could build himself the gadget. James Bond gets handed a gadget by Q but knows when to use it because he can get himself into the room differently. True.
1: Yeah, I, it, that's a it, good d, point. It's a
0: different set of approaches, but they're definitely both succeeding at the same things with two different skill sets.
1: Yeah, they play the same role. And, and I'm not suggesting they're similar in character, but in story structure, in story function, uh, they are so similar.
0: <laughs> in our superhero analogy, though, they would be an, an interesting and excellent team up. Yes,
1: yes, they would. But that's also a thing because... We
0: get to see in all of these, Basil Rathbone, a different depiction of Watson. Because Watson's not our narrator in these.
1: No. Once no. you
0: remove it from, this, from the story, you lose. Once you remove it from the written story, you lose Watson's narration. And that means we see a camera's third person depiction of Watson and not being our audience surrogate he changes as a character.
1: Yeah, the depiction of Watson in these movies is to me the most dissatisfying and the most disappointing part of them. Nigel Bruce, terrific actor, nothing against Nigel Bruce's performance. It's the way this character is written, the way this character is is directed, I would say. And I have to acknowledge to some extent what this character had to do in a movie versus in the stories. He's changed a lot, and he's not the competent medical slash military man that he is in Conan Doyle's world.
0: Yeah, you described him in our previous uh, podcast as a man who would be interesting and on his own, and then was interesting because he was also the guy who could tell you about Sherlock Holmes, but he was on his own, this fascinating character, this man
1: who who had stories you would listen to. And Watson, in the stories, contributes something to the Holmes and Watson team that, that Holmes couldn't provide. And as you mentioned earlier, we see as the stories go on, Watson becomes more and more of a man of action. And I see that as kind of him recovering and regaining the kind of life that he had trained for. Because, I mean, he's an, an army officer medical doctor in he's this is somebody who could tear you to shreds and then patch you up again I always saw the Watson in the stories as a badass in some ways I guess that means our
0: James Bond comparison is more of a an empowered automatic Watson
1: (laughs) with a Holmes
0: back at base who gives him gadgets instead of having to be the Holmes on the actual
1: field and I can understand why for a movie series in the 30s and 40s that didn't necessarily work Because we need to have our hero. And our hero, our our, our eponymous hero, Sherlock Holmes, he can't just be the smart detective and somebody else is the athletic action hero. Not that Holmes didn't have any athletic capabilities, but there was a different division of labor, so to speak, in the books, I always thought. In the movies, Holmes has got to be the smart detective. He's also got to be the action hero. He's also got to be the one fist-fighting bad guys. And what does that leave... Watson to do if he's not our narrator and he's not the um, the the military trained athletic guy of the team the role left for him is another one that you kind of need in a movie and that's the bumbling sidekick who is slow witted enough that the hero has to explain things to him so that we get an up an excuse to explain things to the audience who adds some comic relief and some contrast. All of those are needed in a movie, and Nigel Bruce does a great job of making Watson that character. So I understand why they do it. I understand the extent to which it does work, but it still disappoints me because Watson is such an interesting character, and we don't get the character of Watson in these movies.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, The fact that the series is always Sherlock Holmes despite the fact that the books are always depicted as excerpts from the writings of Watson is, is the key distinction in my mind there Mm -hmm. that that is always an important portion and that is always part of
1: what's lost. Yeah. That is missing from, from the movies in a way that is, it's kind of sad to see it go. And yet making allowances like that for the fact that it is, and as I say this a lot, you've got to adapt things to different media and they're this, Type of storytelling for one media is not medium is not going to work for all mediums. Media, it's late. i miss mixing my uh, my media's there. Um, the movies, by and large, you know they they turn out right. And Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon, it's a good proto James Bond movie.
0: Absolutely, I it's, really
1: enjoyed it. That one was really fun. It was actively placed, and it was based on
0: one of the uh, Conan Doyle stories. Yeah, it was an interpretation.
1: Of the Dancing Men. Which is a fun Conan Doyle story.
0: And in some ways that shows you how well the original stories are written. Because even changing the time and changing the MacGuffin and everything, the mystery itself works. That puzzle still fits well elsewhere.
1: Yeah, the fact that you can strip these stories for parts and come up with so many great parts to reuse uh, is um, an example of, of how well they're put together.
0: Mm-hmm. And then stepping... We're gonna, it's a step back... Movie-wise, the first of the movies, the Hound of the Baskervilles, I mean, that's a classic one of the stories.
1: Yeah, and as much as I enjoyed Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon, the two 20th Century Fox movies that are set in the original time period are, I think, better and are my favorites, and Hound of the Baskervilles might be the best. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, I agree with
0: you on Hound of the Baskervilles. That is an excellent one. I mean, that is a story that has some interesting twists. It has a fun location. It's also one of the only ones where the deerstalker cap makes any sense. That's a whole <laughs> thing. Like, original illustrations for the short stories in their publication had the deerstalker cap. And then that becomes just iconic, despite the fact that that's not the hat he's described with in the books. And it doesn't make sense half the time for where he's wearing it and when. But it becomes part of the look. It's the deerstalker cap. It's the pipe and the magnifying glass. And that's become shorthand. You can, t- you can say Sherlock Holmes with just those three symbols at this point.
1: Yeah, it is, uh, it's a rare character who can be, who's so well-known that he can be condensed in that way. But, uh, but yeah, it sounds like we agree that the Hound of the Baskervilles, the first 20th century Fox movie, is, is probably the best that we've watched so far in our, our limited viewing uh, a screening series so far.
0: I mean, we could dive into the actual story of that one, but that one's got a lot of twists to it. It's it's a little more character dense than some of the other mysteries. It's it's got this back and forth aspect to it in terms of the plot and the plan and what's going on.
1: Yeah, it really is a true mystery mm-hmm. in that you know what's going on and who's doing it and why. There's some crime happening. Yeah, you know, people are, are are dying, and there's some question about is it murder. Is it the ghostly curse, and um, and Sherlock Holmes is is examining the evidence and getting to the bottom of this mystery? But of course, that requires there to be a lot of characters, as you say. So because we need enough red herrings and we need enough potential suspects, that uh, it is a very expansive movie. And that's it is a lot of characters, but it doesn't seem crowded to me. It seems expansive. It. I mean, a lot of it takes place in a
0: a moor, which is just kind of uh, an open
1: atmospheric
0: area in general.
1: And, you know, that's something that makes it interesting, makes the novel and then the, the movie interesting as a contrast, because so many of the Sherlock Holmes stories are such London stories, and everything about them is bound up in the infrastructure and society and events of London, that this hardly takes place in London at all. And as you say, most of it is out in the countryside. It made for a good movie to adapt, a good book to adapt to a movie. And maybe this is one of the reasons why it's one of the better known of the stories is that it, it works as a standalone pretty well because it's in a different setting than most Sherlock Holmes stories.
0: The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes movie, though, I wasn't
1: so sure of. That's, you know, thinking about it, it, it is less than the sum of its parts. There are some good bits and good scenes and good ideas in it. But, yeah, it, it is not necessarily assembled in the most deft way.
0: I mean, it's got a very fun early introduction to Moriarty, played by a different person. Very yeah, that's different a different Moriarty.
1: A different actor from the one we see later in the uh, the. Uh, secret weapon but it's
0: a good introduction to this character in movie form i mean he pretty much just sits there and taunts and spells out the fact that like i do crime because it's fascinating but i'm getting tired of crime so i'll do one big crime and you won't catch me bye sherlock yeah he's having (laughs) his entire fun is just waggling it in his face
1: yeah this was adapted from a play and there are definitely parts where you can say okay this is a long speech that they've taken word for word from the play This is a weird convoluted action scene that wasn't in the play, but they realized that at some point they needed to add to the movie. Mm -hmm. And it's got a lot of odd threads and
0: timing and some slow parts. I mean, I'm going to say pacing on this was odd, but I mean, I feel like it had a mystery and it had a lot of filler.
1: I guess. One of the reasons why I like this one so much is that Moriarty's plan is so interesting and so good. Oh, yeah. And the fact that both the plan, the crime that he planned and his method for distracting Sherlock Holmes are so well thought out. This is kind of a Moriarty's the protagonist movie for me in that sense. <laughs> yeah. not, a, not a protagonist I sympathize with, but a protagonist where I want to see... He's come up with this cool plan. Is it going to work? I mean, yeah, if you if you give
0: Moriarty a, like a good guy m- a motivation for this, this <laughs> becomes like a strange Fast and Furious or now you see me movie in the weirdest cool way. But instead, it's Moriarty just like trying to one up Sherlock Holmes be a jerk about it so you just want him to get it in the end
1: so if moriarty were stealing the crown jewels so that he could pay for his sister to go to medical school he'd be the good guy uh i'm sorry i got distracted by the fast and furious thing <laughs> which happens like five times a day with me so okay oh goodness yeah. <laughs> uh, just trying to think of what the the and buggy version of fast and furious is. <laughs> so yeah i think i am my my opinion of the adventures of Sherlock Holmes is colored by how interested I am in Moriarty's plot.
0: Also, fist fight on the roof. Yeah, that's got a, a good action ending, doesn't it? That that action ending has more t- has more in line with the Robert Downey Jr. version of Sherlock Holmes than <laughs> various of the other film things. It's like you want to see where that starts out. It's over here where he like knows how to kick a guy.
1: And Conan Doyle does set up some of that for Holmes, in that he mentions that he has, he has some training in fencing and boxing and single stick. But um, but yeah, he's definitely the two-fisted action hero in some of these movies. Mm-hmm. He's not a great shot. No, no. I, um, I, I, in some ways, be, I guess being a good shot is the only thing they leave Watson. I guess. Do, do we ever see Watson shoot? A gun? We see Watson being really fast at having a gun on hand when things go awry. I think he just keeps one in the pocket of every suit he owns. He's got a lot of old service revolvers, I guess.
0: (laughs) Sorry, I'm just thinking Homestar Runner with pom-pom pulling pistols out of nowhere over and over. And I'm
1: like, I guess that's Watson. Yeah. um, Guns are kind of convenient plot devices. In these movies, in some of these movies at least, where, when necessary, somebody can be such a crack shot that they can shoot the gun out of somebody else's hand from 40 paces. And other times, they couldn't hit the side of a barn. Rarely do they actually make a a head or a center of mass shot when that's what would be logical. Yeah. And it's not just that firearms were not as accurate then.
0: Bullets are powered purely by narrative convenience in this world. No gunpowder required.
1: But we talked a bit about the plot of Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon and the plot of, um, or the fact at least that we uh, I liked the plot of Sherlock Holmes, uh, the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. What do you think of the adaptation in the movie of uh, The Hound of the Baskervilles? Hound of the
0: Baskervilles is, I think the
1: adaptation's
0: pretty good. They ha- they're using a lot of fun with their sets and their their budget, to be able to really pull the atmosphere in.
1: Oh, yeah, they do a great job with that in things that are clearly, when you really look closely, this is paint and and sets and smoke in a, a soundstage. And yet they give you the real sense of this big but creepy environment.
0: And that's so important for that story because it's a story where the there is a ticking clock in some ways more than others of his stories. At least in the original uh the original narratives, it's not a murder that is being solved after, it is a murder in prevention of another murder. You know, it's a figure out this one so we know how it's being done to prevent another. That adds this en- this tension that they're able to maintain in the this adaptation in part because our the 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 potential victim is constantly headstrong enough to be like, I'm not going to die. And you that means everyone else gets to go, oh my goodness, he's going to die. We got to fix this. Yeah.
1: The only reason you're here is because the person you inherited this place from died in exactly the way the family curse said he was going to die. And that everybody who inherits this place dies. So will you please take it seriously? <laughs> I mean... You have to be able to get
0: that, that tension, that driving force right, and being able to do so in the film. And black and white film can be so, in that time, in that movie time, like era, there was such a draw it out, you know, take advantage of the fact that we can show this and kind of luxuriate in the, the fact that we can bring you into a space or move quickly, show you What we've got here, because if we hold for too long, the set will fall apart. Kind of, (laughs) this is a little early. We're figuring this out as we go. So we're moving from thing to thing to get the story going. This one's able to find that balance of, you know, we'll reuse the rock set, but that's because they keep coming back here to investigate. And we will like show the people figuring stuff out. But when something's going down, things go down quickly. And they use that that sliding scale of time that they've got and how long they hold on stuff in an editing way I don't think I'd see until much later. So they do a really good job interpreting it with the medium they've got.
1: Yeah, we talk about the differences in pacing in media from different times. And this really does have not just a set pace that you can recognize from a particular time, but it has changes in pace and it uses pace as a tool as the story changes and as the story progresses.
0: Not having Watson's uncertainty in the written version, they use the camera's uncertainty in the the film version.
1: And speaking of Watson, we did talk about Nigel Bruce and Watson and the way the character changed for the sake of the movies. He is the least changed, I think, in this first movie. He's more the the Watson from the books. He's still changed a great deal. He's still a bit more of the slightly dim-witted sidekick. He's still older than Holmes for reasons that are not clear, except that they wanted to cast Nigel Bruce, maybe. But, um, but he's more the Watson that we like to see, that I like to see. Oh, yeah. And he has more agency in that he's, he spends more time Separate from, from Holmes and reporting back to Holmes and keeping tabs on things himself. So there's a sense that...
0: He's the active investigator for a good yeah. portion of this. Inter- of this.
1: So he has more of Holmes's trust in that way as well. Oh, yeah. There are some changes that I, I'm not sure I understand, or at least that disappoint me. The um, spoilers, as usual, for, for things, but at the, the center of Hound of the Baskervilles is the Hound. And this story... Oh. I'm I'm distracting uh, myself and sending myself off on a tangent. In Hound of the Baskervilles we also get this side story telling the 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 history behind something again and we get the reason for the curse and Prince Hugo or, or Count Hugo I think it was. Oh yeah. And um and I think that's done pretty well in the movie where we have somebody reading to Holmes this legend this bit of the family history. And yet then they are depicting it in film in this little vignette framed flashbacks two centuries earlier. That's done pretty well, I thought. That's a captivating little movie inside the movie. But, um, but the curse is that you know, Count Hugo was killed by this hound out on the moors for the evil he was doing. And every one of his heirs has been killed in the same way by this ghostly hound and in the description in the book this really is apparently a ghostly hound because it has this glowing face and red eyes and that's one of these kind of there's a scientific explanation behind it it's kind of a Scooby Doo thing in the Conan Doyle story where in the per, there's a person behind it who's got this ravenous hound that he's been letting loose on the people who who inherit this property And he is uh, painting its muzzle with uh, phosphorus in order to make it glow in the dark so that it looks like a ghost. They leave that glow in the dark part out of the movie completely. They do. And that disappoints me because I always thought that was a a cool element.
0: They do a good job of making these dogs absolutely terrifying. Oh, yeah.
1: It's horrifying. Maybe even more so because it looks like a real dog.
0: Oh yeah, but yeah, the glowing face part is is lost, and that is a fun part of the Hound of the Baskervilles. The, the ghost dog, yeah. roast dog, Ruh-roh. <laughs> uh, portion is always a fun aspect of Hound of the Baskervilles because it is the closest in the it's in the closest in the original stories you get to Sherlock Holmes versus the supernatural at times, and that is a whole other subgenre of spinoffs now. I mean, there's entire stories of Sherlock Holmes versus Cthulhu that I want to read (laughs) because putting this man of science against something that seems so beyond his reach is fun. It's this, this classic push and pull, but removing that for this might be an important step to make sure this feels believable. Also, I don't know how well a phosphorescent dog face will show up on original, on early black and white film like that.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably one of the main uh, reasons. It's not strictly necessary for the story. The fact that the story works so well in this movie adaptation without that aspect is, is proof. But it probably, it was just hard to do, hard to photograph, and it was one more detail that would have cluttered the story for the sake of the movie. So I can understand why they left that out, but it still disappoints me a little bit. Um, and you touched on something, uh, talking about you know the supernatural aspects. That's a whole digression that I'm always at risk of going into when talking about Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes, and that's around Conan Doyle's interest in spiritualism and psychical phenomenon. And he more or for the most part keeps the Sherlock Holmes stories very firmly grounded in the physical sciences yeah and yet so much of Conan Doyle's career involved or touched upon his interest in these topics which at the time were not as divorced from science as they appear to be to somebody today in that they were regarded as something that science is in the process of figuring out um so uh It is interesting to get a little bit of that, a little touch of that in The Hound of the Baskervilles in the form of the seance scene. Oh, goodness, the seance scene. There's all these characters who live in and around the moors, and one of them, uh, this lady, is apparently a talented medium, and she's persuaded to conduct a seance with them. Uh, at this dinner party, and that's kind of a strange and fun scene.
0: That scene is really wild, just because it
1: it feels like a completely separate movie for a moment. And they don't use that to ha- give a, a supernatural agency to provide information for the mystery. It's just, in some ways, it's a red herring. In some ways, it is setting the environment and establishing these characters. So I think it, it serves a really good function, in addition to just being a fun scene. Oh, yeah. It, it's good. it does have some of the best lines in it, though. <laughs> so we've watched uh, three of these 14 movies so far.
0: My goodness, there's a lot of these.
1: And uh, whether or not we do a podcast about it, I do think we're going to keep watching these. Just because they're fun, they're, they're available, though they can be hard to find sometimes because some of the early ones have fallen out of copyright uh, because they were not renewed. Uh, but there are ways to find almost all of them. I'll link to some sources in the show notes. But I think that is uh, beginning to bring us down to the end of this uh, podcast episode, and I'm trying to figure out if our final questions make a lot of sense. I guess our first question for movie always makes sense, and that is screen or no screen?
0: I'd say screen. I mean, be selective with which ones. I I do not suggest The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I think it is a pacing mess with some weird interpretation and the fact that it's the one not Based off of a Conan Doyle story, it says plenty and is kind of evident at times.
1: Yeah, but most of the 14 movies are not based on Conan Doyle stories.
0: I know. <laughs> that makes me nervous.
1: Yeah, I would say screen. Definitely start with The Hound of the Baskervilles. I would say watch The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes as well. Have, have the, the appropriate expectations, but it's worth it just for some of the scenes and for this really interesting plot. And then, of course, after that is when you start getting into the the World War II setting and Sherlock Holmes versus Nazis, and they have their own interesting attraction as well. So, yeah, screen and as as uh, as you say, Ian, be selective maybe. But there's a lot of great stuff to watch here. As far as I'm sorry, you were, they're they're good popcorn
0: films. They're yeah. they're fun to play on in the background fold some laundry, snack on some popcorn or something, do another thing while it's on. It's not going to pull your attention in all the time, but it's going to be fun atmosphere to have on.
1: Absolutely will. And then when it comes to uh, revive, reboot, or, or rest in peace. It's hard to say on this because
0: this is an, <laughs> this is an adaptation of a thing that's already currently still being a- adapted in all different ways. So I guess the question more is how much... The Basil Rathbone interpretation of Sherlock Holmes should be a point people should look towards for their own adaptations of Sherlock Holmes.
1: Oh, okay. That's I was trying to figure out how to make these questions relevant, and that's a great way to do it. I would say, yeah, it's a it's gotta be a a a data point. It's gotta be a a touchstone about it, but you don't just wanna remake a new version of the Basil Rathbone movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I, I definitely think that if we're if we're calling it that, I'm saying reboot in equivalence, because I think that the tone and such that this does is a fine place if you're trying to figure out how to tone a Sherlock Holmes story. Look at these. These are a great example. Just don't forget your Watson the way these do. <laughs> and you s- look at how you're interpreting your Sherlock Holmes for when you're setting your Sherlock Holmes, because if this... If these actors, if this interpretation, can move from p- time period to time period, this smoothly that says something about what they're doing is a good example of how to detach him from his world but keep him in his element.
1: Yeah, I think there we are, there always will be reboots of Sherlock Holmes, and you uh, you could do far worse than using these as one of your reference points and and we're definitely going to be talking in the in the near future about other adaptations of Sherlock Holmes, including ones that I think do a much better job with uh, uh, Doctor John Watson. Oh, good. And uh, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode that covers one of them. But in the meantime, Ian, where can people find you?
0: I'm available on Twitter
1: as Item Crafting, on YouTube as Item Crafting, and on Twitch as Item Crafting Live. And people can find me uh, at my website, ByMatthewPorter.com. You can also find me on Twitter at ByMatthewPorter or uh, as ByMatthewPorter on Twitch. The podcast you can find at IMMProject.com, and that's where you will find links to all of our past episodes. You'll find a link to our shop if you like T-shirts and coffee mugs and fun things like that. A link to our uh, Discord. A link to our Patreon. Appreciate it very much if... uh, if you're able to support us there and we will have some Sherlock Holmes related special bonus episodes going up there for our Patreon supporters. And uh, you'll also find the podcast on Twitter as I cast. So thanks very much for for listening and downloading the podcast. We hope you'll come back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.